welcome back to What the HR Podcast. I'm Jesse Novi, an HR business partner with CH Robinson. And I'm Mike Toole, HR technology consultant with SAP SuccessFactors. In this episode, we discuss the importance of an employee listening strategy. We're joined by Dr. Benjamin Granger, who is an experience management catalyst within Qualtrics's XM Institute. Ben has over a decade of experience building, running, and optimizing employee experience measurement and management programs across the globe. In addition to his client-facing work, Ben leads research initiatives within the Experience Management Institute and has pioneered several innovative employee survey techniques and methods that are changing the way many organizations measure and manage employee experience. His research has been featured in academic and practitioner forums, including Forbes, the Journal of Business and Psychology, the International Journal of Training and Development, the Academy of Management, and the Society for Industrial and Organization Psychology. Ben is certified in Lean Six Sigma and earned his PhD in Industrial Organizational Psychology from University of South Florida. Ben offers a lot of great advice and research around how to listen and how to act to improve the experiences of your employees and customers. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, Take 30 seconds and leave us a review. It's sincerely appreciated. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. All right, Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks, Michael. Thanks, Jess. Really, really a pleasure to be here. So as a way of getting started here, you want to just tell our listeners about, uh, Ben, your background and how you landed where you're at and, and talk about where you're at. Yeah. Well, I have a background educationally in industrial organizational psychology, so it's uh, to the layperson, business application of psychology to uh, helping organizations run better. And I've been working in the space field of HR for about 12 years now. For the last five years, I've been working at Qualtrics, which is a uh, software company primarily that helps organizations manage the experiences that they create for employees, customers, potential customers, and the products that they create. And within Qualtrics, I sit within the XM Institute, so Experience Management Institute, which is essentially the research and thought leadership arm of Qualtrics. Prior to joining Qualtrics, were you in the experience space or the HR background? Yeah, I spent five, five and a half years at Verizon, and I was essentially within a, a COE focused on the employee experience. We were doing XM before we called it XM. <laughs> you know, right. So we were building out, designing hiring processes for high volume positions. I did a lot of work with people analytics, working with system integrations to make uh, employee experience that were once very manual, bit more digital and easier. So a lot of that, a lot of that type of work um, before coming to Qualtrics. Right. So employee experience is something we hear a lot about nowadays. It wasn't as, um, I guess, as much of a buzzword maybe five years ago. And can you start off by talking about what you've seen in the customer experience world and the employee experience world and maybe how those two have come together um, as of late? Because it's becoming more and more of a, a known thing that by treating your employees right, ultimately they'll treat your customers right. And that makes a more profitable business. Yeah. You know, the, you touch on something that I personally am extremely passionate about and that it's really just started in the last few years, which is there's 
so much commonality between the experiences that we design and deliver to our employees and to our customers that we often don't recognize because we operate in most organizations in silos. And the vast majority of companies that I talk to, I talk to their HR teams. Now that I'm part of the Exum Institute, I also talk to a lot of CX professionals and they have no clue what the other teams are doing. They have zero visibility into that work. There are some that work very closely together for, for a variety of reasons. But what I have learned over the last, I guess, year since being in the Exum Institute is that, yes, there are some differences, important differences in the relationship that an employee has with its organization. The employee is essentially selling his or her services to the company versus a, a customer consumer is buying from the company. So that's a fundamentally different relationship. But there are far more similarities than there are differences. And what I've seen more, to answer your question directly, is a lot more poking, you know, or looking across the aisle to see what are they doing on the customer experience side? How do they think about it? What frameworks do they use? Can we apply that to create consumer-grade employee experience? Can we, can we digitize our employee experience like we do on the um, on the customer side, there's been a lot more of that and a lot more sharing of ideas, which I think is is great to see. So, with we, we think about culture and employee experience, and in the past we had that run of ping pong tables and and beer on tap and things of that nature. <laughs> How has that changed a little bit uh, in in your world? And what are companies focusing on now when it comes to employee mm. experience and uh, quickly, just for our listeners, when you hear XM, CX, right? I just want to make sure that they understand CX would be customer experience. EX would be employee experience. I just want to note that quick. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good, good point. I use those um, acronyms so freely that right. I don't even think about yeah. them. Now, for the record, my, I am a, a big proponent of beer at work. So just saying, I'm kidding. <laughs> half joke, half joke. Um, and ping pong, there's nothing wrong with ping pong at work either. Right. But, <laughs> but you are spot on that. I think when a lot of organizations think about taking their employee experience to the next level, one of the knee jerk reactions is, well, let's see what the tech, the tech companies are doing. Let's see what the, the leaders are doing. Let's look at Silicon Valley or, um, Silicon slopes, for example. And they see all of these extravagant perks like you, you discussed. Now, we work with lots of those companies in Silicon Valley. We work with very traditional financial institutions. We work with companies all over the globe who would never think of offering that as a perk to their employees. And what I can say without flinching is that those sorts of perks, they're cool, but that's not really what employees want in work. It's not a bad thing, but that's not really going to make a difference between giving, putting forth more effort or delivering an exceptional customer experience when I interact with a customer or make the difference between staying with the company or leaving. We just don't see evidence of that. It ultimately goes back to, frankly, the research that's been done 30, 20 years ago, that people come to work 
for a sense of accomplishment. They come to work for social connection. Those are the sorts of things that are important. They, and they come to work for personal growth. If they're not growing, if they're not getting good social connection, building relationships, if their work isn't giving them a sense of purpose, those are the things that are going to make or break the relationship for most employees. That's not to say there aren't exceptions, but those are far more important than uh, beer taps, ping pong tables, and free food at work. Right. Oftentimes you hear companies when they're talking about building their listening strategy, oftentimes people that aren't on the front lines, maybe executives, they feel like things are fine with their culture. And as you move down the org chart, you start to see some problems. But as a company, if if moving towards a, a better strategy of, of listening and creating these experiences, how do you start doing that? Oh, that's a good one. You know, I'll, I'll take a step back to talk. You use the term culture and uh, just just to, to double click on that a second. A lot of times when I work with HR leaders or business leaders, we use the term culture. And what we're essentially referring to is the cultural values or the ideal culture that we want to create within the organization. And we conflate that with actual culture. Those are two different things. You know, ideal culture and cultural values are what the company aspires to, tries to put process around, norms around to reinforce. But in every company, there's a gap between the shared perceptions among employees, which is truly what culture is. That's how we measure it. That there's always a gap, and the, the extent of that gap and where those gaps exist makes can, can really make a huge difference in terms of how effective employees are and how effective the company is. So I think that's a really important thing to point out. I'm glad you used you you talked about that. In terms of measurement and how to get started, I want to say this without you know being too critical of the HR space, but I can. I'm an HR professional. I'm a trained HR professional. I was trained in research methods. I, I think we often have a lack of uh, creativity when it comes to building listening programs. We we anchor too much on where we've come from, and it always makes me think of one of my favorite movies, uh, Back to the Future. You know, and at the end of the movie, Doc Brown comes back and gets Jennifer and Marty in the car and Marty's like, well, we don't have enough road to, to get. He's like, well, we're going, we don't need roads. And sometimes I think HR people need that mindset that yes, it is important to understand where we're coming from. It is important that we've had this big engagement survey that goes out every year and our executives expect it. That's important. And we can't just pivot completely overnight, but sometimes we need to think about like, is that really the best way to do it? And back to your CXEX example, Michael, like, would we ever send a customer a 60-item survey with 60 statements that they agree or disagree with? Absolutely not. When I get those, I delete them. I don't, I don't finish those. Like, that's a terrible experience. So why do we put employees through that? So my advice usually to organizations is there's nothing wrong with those measurements, but man, we can make them a lot better. We can make them more conversational. We could probably shorten them quite a bit. We can start embedding those measurements into the moments that matter to the employees. Take Look at the experience from their perspective. What's important from their perspective? Let's listen at those points. And then over time, we can gradually expand what, when we're listening and how we're listening. And then the last point I would make is it's not all about surveying. 
surveys are one way, you know, that's an explicit way of an organization saying, we have a question, we want you to answer. And that's super important, by the way. But there's many different ways to listen. And uh, I always look to Ford. Ford does a really good job of this. They have a a three-part strategy for how they collect sentiment among their workforce, their massive 200,000 employee workforce. They call it ask, listen, observe. Ask is about surveying. They formally survey employees regularly at those moments. They also listen and they look for opportunities to passively collect sentiment, whether it's online chat forums where employees are commenting. They mind that. What are, what are employees saying passively? And they also observe. They look for behavioral patterns and actual data, operational data. And that triangulates what employees think about, what is top of mind, how do they think about it, and then in turn, what can they do or communicate back? Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And I, I think what I heard is you don't have to get away from the annual survey, but it can't be just that. It's it's more of these kind of lightweight pulse surveys in certain moments within an employee journey that you want to capture some of that data. Is is that fair to say? That's right. Yes. I don't. I don't think we throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, there's nothing inherently wrong with those surveys, but we can we can get more creative. As far as the communication piece goes, you know, Ben, do you have recommendations to organizations on how they do that? You know, I'm I'm thinking back just to our organization and following, you know, the death of Mr. Floyd and you know, civil unrest. We did a listening strategy where our CEO held multiple calls, you know, throughout a, a period of time and allowed people to register and attend those. And it was really kind of an open forum, really, for employees to share thoughts or concerns or recommendations for the organization. When you're referring to more of those kind of anecdotal listening opportunities, do you recommend something that formal or is yours more around the lines of, you know, hey, my leader connects with their employees pretty regularly through one-on-ones and then, you know, that information maybe gets bubbled up to their respective leader and that data is collected and, and shared back with the powers that be. I love the fact that you're bringing up that question with I, and I get that question a lot too. Is it, is it more important to do the sort of the one-on-one very personal listening? Is it more important to do agile listening? Is it more important to do formal listening? Are they all important? I think they're all important, but I actually think the, those examples of very personal communication and interaction, regular interaction directly with a human being, that's the most important component of listening. I think that's far more important that that sort of thing happens than we're sending out an annual survey. With that said, I think both should happen, right? I think all of we should be doing formal listening. We should be explicitly asking our employees because there's power in listening. Like there's power in the comp. This is what we need to know from you, and we care. That implicitly communicates something, but it's incredibly important to have those really personal touch points. And, and Jess, just to really reinforce that point, we did a very large global study of employee attitudes right in the middle of the pandemic. We collected data in, in the month of May, 26 countries across all major industries. When we looked at the drivers of engagement, of well-being, 
by people saying that they feel like they have positive well-being or negative well-being indicators of resilience. The second biggest driver of those was the frequency and the quality of communication directly from senior leadership. And what we saw, interestingly, when we compared that 2020 during the pandemic data to data that we collected in 2019, trust in senior leadership shot up 17 points, which is huge difference. And I think a lot of that is because companies did what you just said. They started directly and frequently communicating directly from the senior leadership. People felt more connected to their company in some ways than they ever have. And employees were essentially telling us that matters a lot. Yeah, the, the pandemic definitely brought out the best in, in some companies. And it was a time when, you know, as an employee, there was so much uncertainty and how your leadership handled it. I guess it could have went both ways, good and bad. Um, you hear more probably about the good, Spot things, on. you know, you hear more about the good that, that had happened. Jesse, did you have another follow-up question? I, I didn't want to cut you off and change um, subjects. Yeah, I, a little bit. I was, I'm, I don't want to skip too far ahead here, but I'm, I'd like to talk eventually about just follow-up, especially in some of those cases. So yeah. do you want to go there now, Mike, or did you yeah. have? That's actually where I wanted to go because uh, we were talking about how, you know, Ben, you mentioned it, it shows people that you're listening and that's, that's a great first step, but people also want to you got to show that you're listening. And I think that's where some people get hung up. We talked about it in one of our podcast episodes before where somebody, they, they wanted to listen more, but they were executives were worried about what does that mean for us? If people are telling us what they want and we can't follow through on it. So can you right. talk about how you need as a company, how you need to execute. And then also, as we discussed that you don't have to really, you don't have to do everything that somebody asked for. That's right. Yeah, that I think is the very common natural question to, especially when we talk about doing more listening and doing different types of listening. It's like, okay, well, we struggle with action planning after the one survey we do. How could we possibly do this when we start listening more? And that's a fair question. I would first say it starts with the expectations that you set on the front end. And I'll use this. There's a major retailer, global retailer based in Germany. And the way that they frame their listening program, which, by the way, they go out to their retail employees every two months. So that's a pretty frequent pulse strategy, especially for retail. And they frame it as a coffee talk with your senior leader. And they essentially set the frame as you as an employee have an opportunity every two months to have a live conversation with your senior leader. 10 minutes, you can tell them what, what you're happy about, what needs to be fixed, et cetera. Would you reasonably expect them to do everything you suggested? 99% of people say, of course not. That's not reasonable. So when you set that frame that, yes, we are listening, we are gonna do something about it, but it does not mean we're gonna do everything. In fact, if we tried to do everything, we wouldn't do anything really well. <laughs> you know, if we did 10 action plans, then none of them would be very good. And what our data shows that employees give companies a lot of grace if they show that one, we're communicating back transparently 
here's what you told us in this survey. And they do that quickly. That actually leads to perceptions of actionability from employees. The simple act of saying, here's what you told us, and here's what we're planning to do about it. One, two, three. That has a dramatic impact on the perceptions of employees about, okay, I trust that they're doing something with this. I understand they're not going to be able to do everything. The other thing too is on the front end, just like setting expectations, you can also look at the questions you ask from that lens. And I I won't, this isn't a universal statement because I think there are times and there's a time and a place for questions that may not actually be actionable. But a lot, one of the activities that I go through with my clients is as we're creating the survey instruments itself, we'll ask the question, one, if this item were an issue, who's responsible for it? Is there a clear answer to that question? Who's accountable for this? What group, what function, what group? And then second question, can and would they do anything about it? And if the answer to one of those questions is, I'm not sure, or I don't know, we should flag that as potentially, we may not want to ask that. You know, and a lot of times the answer to could, would we do something is yes, but I have no clue who owns this. You know, it's 10 different people. Clear that up first before you start asking the question. So I think a lot of it you can do on the front end. And on the back end, my suggestion would be a lot of times we, again, back to that Doc Brown example, (laughs) uh, back to, I can't help but go back to the future, right? We often think of the old action planning process that we would use with the big survey. You know, erase that from your mind. Most of the action that happens in response to employee feedback is micro behavioral changes that managers and middle managers do. It's, I'm having a conversation differently. I'm having a follow-up team meeting and I'm gonna do it differently. And I'm gonna filter the communications I'm getting from senior leadership back to my team slightly differently. But then I make the explicit connection. You gave me this feedback in this last survey. This is what I heard. So this is what I'm going to do differently. And that's not a major action plan. That's not a huge process change. That's something that managers can do really easily. When we talked about, or you talked about acknowledging that we can't fix everything and that that's that's okay, how do companies pick what to fix then? Is it by answering those two questions that you mentioned, who, who can fix it and, and will they? Or as a company, when I see 10 different things and I can't fix them all, how do I decide which one's going to have the biggest impact? I think practically it's a mix of both. Practically, what often happens is you'll have at a company level or at a function level, you have groups that a task force, for example, to go and, hey, this is a major process change or policy change we need to consider. So we need a task force to go carry that out. Sometimes that is necessary. I think a lot of times though, it goes back to the simple fixes where a leader of a function has three or four areas of opportunity. Pick one, make it an OKR, make it a goal for the next quarter or six months and fix that. Just pick one or two. And the way that there's tons of different ways you can do that. Some will do, you know, straight statistical driver analysis. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think there has to be some combination of what's the most practical, what's the lowest hanging fruit, 
maybe even a follow-up focus group where you're actually making employees or you're giving employees options. Here are three or four things that we can focus on. Knowing, right, giving them full visibility into what it's going to take from their standpoint to go fix these, which one would, would make the biggest difference for them? I think that's a that's a really good way to do it, right? You're involving them in the process of deciding what to focus on, but you're also making them make uh, choices. You're making them make difficult choices. And that I think is a very good way. And you you come up with that that list of four or five things to choose from, maybe from a combination of your driver analysis, what's most important to engagement and and what's the lowest hanging fruit, for example. What you said there was take those ideas and there's, there's maybe some that are easy fixes that, you know, it doesn't require a ton of effort and you just didn't know about, you can fix those. But for the other things you're saying, you accumulate the list and then you ask the employees, which are most important out of those. Is that what I heard? Yeah. And there's a variety of ways to do that. Um, one, we've seen some companies do actually a follow-up survey where they go out to everybody. And now I would not recommend just a, here's five things rank order these rather when you when you're making people make difficult decisions there were better like conjoint analysis which is not that's a very common approach that we'll use on the cx side not as common on the employee experience side that's a much better way to do it for example like if we're trying to make a decision about all right we have limited budget we know from the feedback you gave that we need to change our benefits offering but what's the optimal benefits package Sending a, a survey and saying, rank order these, that's a terrible approach to doing that. You would want to use some sort of max diff or conjoint analysis. But yeah, to answer your question simply, Mike, you, that could be done going back to the whole workforce, or it could simply be done by getting a representative groups uh, across the company and doing a quick focus group with them to discuss, here's, here's, the, here's what we're trying to do. Let's discuss which ones would make the biggest difference for you and your peers. On that point, you know, we had we talked a little bit ago about over surveying or over listening. And mm-hmm. we've talked, we've talked about pulse surveys now. We've we've talked about a follow-up survey to a survey. If you have an organization that's really consistent with their listening strategy through a combination of the resources that we've talked about today, which would be formal census survey, maybe a follow-up pulse survey. Leaders are also having regular check-ins, maybe um you know, C-level executives are doing regular listening strategies. At any point, Ben, do you feel like it just gets to be too much and employees (laughs) are just over-asked? I I think about, you know, I'm a regular, when pre-COVID, I'm a regular Delta flyer and I can't get off a Delta flight without Delta immediately knowing that I've departed their plane and they (laughs) want to know what my experience was like. And sometimes I take the opportunity to respond, but other times I'm like, Delta, I've told you the last 15 times that my experience was, I'm not interested in completing your survey today. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, (laughs) I'm so glad you brought that up. I think there's absolutely a point where Okay, I, I told you, I told you about this before. We talk about, we use the term survey fatigue a lot. Um, that's very real. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll sidestep the question real quick and then I'll answer that directly, Jess. But some of the interesting research we've done on survey fatigue and trying to understand is that a real thing? At what point does it a, a happen? What we found interestingly is that survey fatigue is much more likely to happen 
within a single survey. So, and I would use the, the technical terminology within survey fatigue is more powerful than across survey fatigue, which means we get more fatigued when we have a huge, massive questionnaire in front of us. And that's less likely to happen if you have shorter, quicker, more ingrained measures that are kind of scattered out throughout the year, for example. We also see less, fewer perceptions of survey fatigue when the questionnaires are built into the process that people go through. And so I'll use the example of a ride share. You know, when you get out of Uber or Lyft, you immediately, you click the star, you rate your ride. Now I'm not an advocate of star ratings necessarily. There's a time and a place for multimedia anchoring. But with that, what's brilliant about it is, you know, they have a 98, 99% response rate. Why? Is it because it's short? Maybe. But the Delta example you brought up is also short. I personally think it's because it's built into the process. Part of the process of rideshare is giving feedback. And it's quick. And it's easy. So that reduces perceptions of survey fatigue. And then the ultimate finding that we found goes back to the action. Survey inaction fatigue is more powerful than survey fatigue. And what that means is when, when employees feel like they have strong perceptions that their feedback is acted upon, they usually don't mind giving feedback, you know, up to a certain point, of course. The last piece of research I'll share is we also did some global research about a year ago, a little, bit, a little more than a year, maybe a year and a half. And we wanted to understand how often do employees want to be asked for feedback? Like, when is enough enough? We just straight ask them. And the modal response was three to four times a year, I'd like to be formally surveyed. But there were massive differences in age. <laughs> Younger employees had a far greater tolerance for more listening, which makes sense given their consumer experiences are, are full of those. Older employees had much less. What the modal response among employees 55 and older was leave me alone. <laughs> Don't ask me. <laughs> so there, there are meaningful demographic differences. So to answer your question directly, when you triangulate all that, there absolutely is a point where enough is enough. And I think it's incumbent upon the organization to say, are we asking about something that's likely to change, right? If we're asking something at every interaction, are we asking them whether I'd recommend the company you know, after every little IT interaction, that doesn't make any sense, right? Or even in consumer surveys, after I go through a, real, a, a 10 minute transaction with my cable provider and they ask me, would you recommend this company based on this interaction? No, I like that has nothing to do, whether I recommend the company has nothing to do with the 10 minute interaction I had. But if you asked me, did the rep resolve your issue and do you need to call back? That's totally relevant. So you can you can make those changes and, and be much more careful about what we're asking. The more relevant people feel it is, the less likely they're going to find it onerous or taxing. Yeah, and I, I'd love to kind of peel away the layers of there's so many things within a survey. You know, we, we, we've talked about a few things here. I want to go back. One on Jesse's point on Delta, because I always flew Delta and I got the same survey. I love Delta, ben, by is the there way. Any... It's a great customer yeah. experience on flight, just for the record. I agree. They do a good job. And 
my in case, question in case we have any delta ben. listeners right <laughs> that's right <laughs> right we, we covered our but is there any research to suggest that even though jesse is a little fatigued that her getting that survey builds loyalty because even though you don't take it anymore jesse do you still feel like they care because they asked you have that choice to say i'm not going to take it is there anything to that ben or am i overthinking that on the consumer side, I honestly don't know. That's a really good question. I will say on the employee on the employee side. Yeah, on the employee side, I'm going back to that that research study that I alluded to, the global research study we conducted in May. And I I mentioned that the second biggest driver of employee attitudes was leadership communication. The first biggest driver was whether the company listened formally to their employees or not during that pandemic period. Interestingly, only half of the employees, the 17,000 employees that we surveyed, said that their company formally asked them for feedback during that part of the pandemic between March and May, or February and May. The other half did, and then, so, and some of them did so multiple times. And there was a very, very clear correlation between the frequency of listening during the pandemic and employee attitudes. Now, we also measured perceptions of action. Did, did they act on what they heard? And that was important, but it wasn't as important as the act of listening. So to your question, Mike, that is evidence that there is something to be said for Right now is a time that you're challenged. How are you doing? Do you have what you need to get your work done? What can we do to help? Just that act has power. I think back to you know arguments that you have with maybe your spouse or significant other, and they say, you know, you say, well, if you need help, you know, ask, and <laughs> then you ask, and they don't need help, and they say, I just wanted you to ask. You know, I just want you to care. You know, I don't, I don't need your help right now. So that's what I'm thinking with the employees. Such a good analogy. Um, yeah. The other thing when we were talking about Uber that I wanted to ask about is, and we've talked about this with Amazon as well. When when your feedback helps other people make decisions, it seems to drive better engagement. When I know that I'm I'm leaving a review on Amazon because I know that I read reviews when I buy something. Is there is there anything that we that you guys do around employee experience where there's to to build that engagement where I know or is that just a cultural thing? I know that's on the consumer side, so on the employee side, like I know responding mm-hmm. is going to help Jesse. I, I know it's going to help other people in my organization. And does that community build engagement with those surveys? Yeah, I'm thinking back to a conference I went to. Maybe it was two years ago, and. It was a, a session on the candidate experience. So the job, people who apply for jobs and how do you optimize that experience? And there was a practitioner there from a, a very large investment bank and they get hundreds of thousands of applications every year. And they send out a post. After you, w- once you know whether you got the job or not, they, they survey the candidate and say, hey, how was the experience? What can we do to improve? And they had, and I was blown away by this stat, they had almost 80% response rate. 
which is insane for that type mm-hmm. for the audience. That's extremely high. I mean, some of the some of the companies we work with whose own employee bases don't see those kind of response rates. And we certainly don't see those kind of response rates on the consumer side. And that was really what he was talking about was how they did that. And one of the things that he uh, talked about was they were very explicit in their communication that they really appreciate the feedback that people give because it helps them create better experiences for them and for other people. And it's an investment for themselves and it's an investment to help others. To your point, huge motivator. Yeah, they felt like they were helping the next person. That's right. Yeah. And I, you know, I've worked for two organizations recently that were, you know, heavy on the listening strategy side. And I know that when, well, I can't speak for everybody. I can speak for myself personally, that when I knew that the survey was set up in a hierarchy perspective, so not only were we going to get uh, survey data on the enter, you know, the employee's enterprise feedback, but it was also going to be, you know, where my manager or the manager of a branch mm. or a specific division or a specific org that I work for was going to be receiving information on how I felt about how that leader was showing up or um, how that leader was creating a vision for our team, you know, et cetera, et cetera that I was more motivated to provide that feedback. Now I'm sure, mm-hmm. I'm sure Ben, that could go both ways. I, I, I know being in human resources. So I hear this from employees that some employees that makes them nervous because they don't know how, yep. um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for guys, how confidential anonymous. anonymous or, yep. Yeah. Um, that the survey mm-hmm. is going to be, and they're concerned about retaliation and so on and so forth. So I, I think the pendulum could swing both ways there. Have, you know, around that regard, have you kind of heard any rumblings or, you know, have any thoughts from that perspective? Yes. And that's always a challenge. We use, we often use the distinction between anonymous and confidential. Anonymous being we, we truly have no way to trace back to the individual compared to confidential where there, there is an, there is a key that links the feedback to back to operational data, demographic data about the employees. But with the technology today, it's very easy to link that, link those back without allowing anyone within the company access to go see what it just say or what it might say, but still link it to your demographics. So we know that, you know, a, a white, female in Boston responded in this way, and then we report on the aggregate. But the, it, that doesn't really matter to employees. It's the perception of whether it feels confidential or analysis uh, or, or anonymous or not. And what was really interesting, we did a, uh, a research study comparing, do perceptions of anonymity differ between confidential surveys and completely anonymous surveys. Now, I did not expect this. I thought people would find confidential surveys to be more invasive. It was the opposite. And the reason for that is in anonymous surveys, because we don't know who they are, we don't know their characteristics, we have to ask. And when you ask, it frames psychologically up, oh, somebody might be able to 
right. find out where I, I sit and where I am. So the perceptions of anonymous surveys are actually worse among employees than confidential surveys. Now, I was all that, all that again, it, it, that's not something you're ever going to 100% fix. But the, what I would say works the best is proving to employees over and over through iterations of the survey that you will not be retaliated against. When they go through a survey and they realize, you know, they, they had no idea. They reported out on this in the aggregate. They're taking action on it. They communicated back with transparency. They're not covering up the bad scores that we gave. Then over time, people will naturally become more, more comfortable with sharing that feedback. So, right. but it, you have to prove it. You have to prove it over time. Well, I think, I think of surveys that I've taken and they're anonymous, but you tell what your role is and what team you're on. And you're looking around, you're like, I only have four people on my <laughs> team. Like, I mean, it's not going to take a brain to figure this one out, but we all, yep. it brings up another good point of people lying on surveys. And that's always a concern of companies is how do I know? So I want to, I want to talk a little bit about how maybe structure can, and I don't want to spend the whole time on surveys. Like I know we've talked a lot about it, but I think it's something people are trying to figure out. How do you structure one to encourage truth telling? And then also talk a little bit about the science behind the tools that companies are using like a Qualtrics that can vet that out. Is that, you know, if I answer in the middle, that actually is a negative point or how does the, how do you guys filter through people being honest on these surveys? Yeah, there's a, I mean, there's a science and an art to it from the uh, the back end side. It's fairly easy to find patterns of people not responding honestly or intentionally or, or being careless. Um, that's pretty easy to do. And, you know, you don't even need a, a high tech survey technology like Qualtrics to do that. That's fairly simple to do. Um, but on the front end, there's a lot you can do in the design of the survey that I don't often see in, in HR. That really helps. And I'll give a really simple example. Everybody's familiar with the, the Likert scaling, or I strongly disagree, strongly agree. Yep. And, that, and that, that's a, there's a reason people do that. It, it's easy to translate across languages. Most companies have normative data where they can do comparisons. We, we offer that as well at Qualtrics. So that, there's some reasons we do it. But when you use a Likert scaling approach, and even when you, you know, you've seen the, we call a matrix style items, where you have 10 statements and it's all in one table and there's 10 times five radio buttons. And then it's the Christmas tree exercise, right? Oh, what pattern can I draw on this? Well, that's also not a very good approach. So when you combine those two, you often will see a significant amount of bias come into play. And it's not, I wouldn't exactly call it being dishonest. I would call it people taking mental shortcuts and not really reading or thinking about the question being asked and the response that they give. And so the, the job of the survey designer is to make the process of survey taking as simple cognitively as possible for the survey taker. Take the item that's very common. I am proud to work for my company. Strongly disagree or strongly agree. That is absolutely not how we talk. Right? Like, Jess, if I wanted to ask you, I would never say that. I would say, Jess, how, 
how proud are you to tell others you work for your company? And and just off the cuff, Jeff, how would you respond? Je- uh, Jess, how would you respond to that? I would say, yeah, I'm very proud to work for my organization. Anchor your responses like that. So in the survey itself, how proud are you to work for your company? Very proud. Um, not proud at all. I'm somewhat proud. I'm extremely proud. So that it's a it's a it makes a major difference in terms of the quality of the data you get from people when you ask a question versus include a statement and when you anchor responses in a way that's very conversational and natural. And that's very commonly done on the customer experience side and even in market research. It's not very common at all in employee experience. So combination of those types of techniques can help an organization get to more accuracy in in the data that they collect. You mentioned that's popular on the consumer side. And that was the question I was going to have is what can companies take from the consumer side and bring into their organization to act? I mean, to your point, their employees are their consumers in a way. So what have we learned on the consumer side that can help um, internally at these companies? Oh, look, my favorite question so far. Um, And I'll put a quick plug myself and my colleague, Amy Lucas, who's a, a true CX expert, are working on a series of articles that break that down. What can HR professionals learn from their customer experience counterparts? And I've been learning so much. So I would say, in addition to those measurement um, principles, two really come to mind that I think are foundational. One is the notion that just as a mindset shift, we should think about the journey that our employees take versus the touch point. And what I mean by that is, you know, as an HR practitioner, even when I go into workshops where we're trying to find out, okay, what are the moments that matter? What data should we be collecting in each of those moments? We think of them as these touch points, right? From our perspective, oh, oh onboarding is a touch point. And going through the, the interview process, that's a touch point. And the training that they go through, that's a touch point. But that's not really what it is from the employee's perspective. It's it's a person who's trying to get a job to support their family, not the candidate touch point. It's a person who just joined your company who's really excited about growing their career here, and they desperately want to learn how to do their job. That's the onboarding process. So when we change our mindset to intentionally think about the journey that the individuals are going through. It helps us build more empathy into the experiences that we design and we deliver. And it just naturally makes a huge difference in the way that we, the way that we work. Related to that, the, and, and that's something that's done very well on the customer side um, that we can adopt. And the second one is very much related to it is a, a framework, a lot of research that we've done within the Institute on how do customers form perceptions about an experience? Like what do they take into account when they answer the question, was that a good experience or a bad one? And there's essentially three characteristics. We call them success, effort, and emotion. Success is, did I accomplish what I wanted to accomplish in this experience? I got on the phone with IT because I wanted them to fix Zoom or whatever video conferencing thing I'm doing. Were they able to help me? That's success. Effort, how easy or difficult was it to do that? Right? Was it one call 15 minutes later, it's fixed? Or did I have to call three different people to figure out who to talk to? So even if I got it fixed, success, it could have been really effortful. 
And then the third and the most important is the emotion that were the emotions that were created during the experience. So when we take that journey-based mindset versus touchpoint-based mindset, we naturally start to design and deliver more positive emotions into the experiences that we deliver. So those are the, I'd say those are the three. And, and, and look, I just learned these <laughs> very recently. I'm still on my learning journey, but those are ones that really, really resonated with me. And that was success. So how much success did you have? How much effort did you put in? And what emotion did that evoke? That's right. That's right. Right. Okay. So you live and breathe this stuff every day. You have education in it. For companies that are trying to do this, there's going to be people that can help them, such as a Qualtrics and, and you know, people on, on your staff. But within an organization, is this so important that they need to have a team dedicated to this specifically? Or can this just sit within HR and mm. everybody kind of pitches in or it's like, hey, we need an experienced team? I believe that it's a progression over time. And I'll give my, my, the ideal answer is that it should be embedded in everything that we do within an organization. Practically, that's not possible, right? We, ha we have to move from where we are today and progress gradually to that point, especially for companies with thousands of people in it. It's just not practical. So what often happens, the progression that we, that I would say I observe is most effective is most companies are sort of in a wild west sort of current state where they have, oh well, yeah, we're collecting this and we're measuring that and we're designing here for this way, but sort of siloed, solo all, all over the place. Most companies will bring that into a center of excellence or within a, they might even reorg. We've had some banks that we've worked with completely reorg under that, but that's only temporary. Because what they're ultimately trying to do is build governance, build structure to eventually allow it to become more part of what a business leader does day to day. Like a, you, I would envision a future where a business leader has access in real time to the sentiment and the performance, right? They're looking at operational data and the experiential data right next to each other when they make a decision. Um, but most companies are not there yet. So I think it's a progression from Wild West, let's bring it in-house, let's centralize it for a while, and then gradually we're going to build up the muscles across the organization. We're going to build those mindsets across the business to then start to expand it in a strategic way. What are the new trends that you see coming down the uh, the pipe? I, I believe, in a, and I hope, and maybe it's more of a hope than a belief, but I hope that we get to a point where it's not an HR team who's doing who's doing this experience work on the employee side, and then there's a, a a sister team doing the same thing on the customer side. I hope that we get to a point where we realize that we're doing stuff so similarly across our candidates, our existing employees, our future employees, our existing consumers, our future consumers. We're doing we have the same language, we have the same frameworks, and then we might specialize, right? We might need to specialize. So I come in with an EX background, you know, Jess, you come in with a EX HR background. I could, I, I hope there's a future where 
we learn a common language, we learn a common set of principles and techniques that are experience management. And then we may choose to specialize. But boy, that would make us so much more effective if we could jump around and apply this to the employee experience, to the candidate experience, to the customer. Just, I just imagine the things we could learn from getting those cross, um, cross pillar experiences, for example. Ben, how can people get a hold of you uh, to chat more about this stuff? Um, well, you can certainly always check out the xinstitute.com. We have all sorts of free thought leadership research tools that are available. You do not have to be a Qualtrics customer to access these. You are welcome to use these as you see fit. Um, that's a good way to do it. We also have a XM Professionals Network, and you can sign up for that through the xminstitute.com. That also is free to anyone, and it's a place where you can interact with other professionals, benchmark with other professionals, talk with folks on the CX side and the market research side. So I think those are two really good ways. And of course, you can hit me up on social media. You know, if you want to have anybody wants to have a conversation like this, I, I love doing that. All you got to do is throw in a, you know, maybe a beer here and there and, and <laughs> happy to talk. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us yeah it was a pleasure ben and and just to be clear what social media platforms are your your drug of choice are you on linkedin or instagram <laughs> or, or facebook all of the above yeah i would say i mostly use linkedin um for for professional social media yeah okay and can they find you at uh, benjamin on linkedin or are you ben on linkedin Good question. Benjamin Granger, or as we say in South Louisiana, Granger. Granger. I like it. So fancy. Yeah. There you <laughs> go. I'll, I'll, I'll put a link. I'll put a link in the show notes to, uh, to your page there. And again, thanks so much. I love this stuff. I know that our audience will, will enjoy listening to it. So thank yeah, you so much great. for your time. Thanks yeah, again. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of What the HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever platform you're listening through now. If you enjoyed the podcast, do us a favor and share with your network, your boss, or your CEO. Help us get this podcast in front of anyone who wants to know what HR looks like when done well. Also, if you have any questions for show topics or people you'd like us to interview, please email Mike and I at podcast at tcsherm.org. That's podcast at tcsharm.org. If you want to find out more about Twin City Sherm or our upcoming events, please visit our website at tcsherm.org. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And finally, if you're not already a member of Twin City Sherm, please use code WHATTHR at checkout to receive $20 off your membership. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.